welcome to the If You Build It, Will They Learn podcast, a show dedicated to modern learning and development with your hosts, Daniel Mendoza and Scott Babcock. It's podcast day. Welcome to the show. This is If You Build It, Will They Learn. I'm Scott Babcock and I am joined by your co-host, Daniel Mendoza. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excited uh, to be back for another week. Always, always enjoy a uh, a good mailbag episode. I know that may have stealed your th- steal stole your thunder, stole your thunder. Love it. But uh, regardless, glad to be here. Yeah, uh, no, 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 stealing thundered uh, there is what we'll say. Uh, no, uh, but we do want. We are doing a mailbag today. I, I clearly got just as tongue tied as you did. That's all right. Uh, and with that, we're also going to bring on our producer, Sabrina Pontoni, who is going to ask our questions rapid fire today. So uh, we're always excited. Our listenership always uh, takes a nice spike whenever Sabrina joins us on the podcast. So um, maybe we should do that more often now that I think about it. If, if uh, we, we do get more listeners, perhaps we should, should give the audience what they want, Daniel. That's all I'm saying. Sabrina's got a lot of family and friends who <laughs> enjoy our podcast when she is on it, I'm pretty sure. Are, so. are you saying these are pity listens or just uh, something like that? Hey. Is it? They don't ask how, they just ask how many. Yeah, there you go. I like it. All right, so we're going to get started with that today, but uh, it's all about uh, some of the questions that we've gotten in from various uh, social media and email and things like that uh, regarding some of our past uh, episodes, and we thought it'd be good to revisit some of those, get answers back out uh, to those that have maybe wanted to dive a little deeper into the content that we've done. So let's go ahead and get started. Mailroom. All right, so for our first question today, um, we're going to stick with the theme of creative writing for these first few and then go into a different theme. So for the first one, how do you establish a scope for creative writing to make sure that the learning objectives aren't lost within the storytelling? So how do you make sure that creative writing doesn't steer away from the end goal? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a topic right up Daniel's alley. As soon as we bring up learning objectives, I can see him start to smile and smirk a little bit. He gets pretty happy. So, uh, and I feel like we went on quite a roll of episodes there where we didn't bring it up, and I maybe we we got away from ourselves a little bit. Um, I, we spent a lot of time over the last month, kind of talking about how important creativity is, and I think uh, when we talk about the difference between sort of traditional instructional design and creative writing. That is a lot of it is is instructional design is often very rigorous to make sure you don't stray too far from those objectives. Um, But we have historically employed creative writing because we like being able to do more storytelling and and have more narrative. But it is a a fine line to walk a little bit to say how much is too much story and not enough content uh, or uh, meat on the bone, if you will, to really sell your message versus just filling it with fluff and um, I think there's a balance there that probably comes from experience, but uh, I, I, I think Daniel will probably iterate something to the effect of uh, just make sure you're staying true to your objectives. Yeah, I think on that note of staying true to your objectives, I want to use the metaphor of like a good TV series. So like I uh, I have a guilty, guilty, you know, pleasure confession to make. So my wife really loves uh, Grey's Anatomy, right? And it's not a show that I, I crave to watch, but... When I walk by and I sit down, I can't, I can't leave. There's just too much drama going on that show. But I digress a little bit. But what I'm trying to say is in any good TV show, any good drama or whatever that is, there is every episode or in this case, a course or a learning has a story, right? It has, but there's, but then throughout a season or, or multiple seasons, there's always an undertone of 
the objective that you're trying to reach. And I think that if you use that idea and you're able to, I guess, get across creative writing or good instructional design, you can tell a story on a micro level, course to course, platform to platform, and still have that that underlying, that undertone or that that overpowering theme throughout that will will be carried and identified by the the learner or the audience. Um, so it, it really all is, you know, understanding your objective, but making sure that kind of everything always relates back to that overarching theme. I know it took a while to get there. We took the long way, but I got there, I think. Wandered down that garden path for Daniel too. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it is all about your objectives. Stay true to those, but, um, you know, make sure your story is speaking back to those points directly, uh, and that will help keep you on track. This next question says you talk a lot about engaging content writing. So what does that actually mean? And could you maybe give an example of what that kind of content would look like? I guess I can kick this one off, uh, Scott. I think um, you you told a nice story about ogres um, and swamps a few weeks ago. It was a doozy. Um, it was a great story. And I think Emma touched on this a bit when she was in the episode a few weeks ago as well. And what it really comes down to is in, in that initial, the beginning of a story, beginning of a training, beginning of a book that you're reading or a TV show or a movie, there's always something that needs to grab you and pull you in. Whether it's the knowing what the objective of the learner is or the audience is, or if it's something that is interesting and makes people looking, you know, ask and looking for more. Um, and when it comes to content writing, you need that, that hook. So if I were to think about you know, if I'm thinking about, about selling and, and sales related training in my role, something that is always a hook for me and to continue to go down that path is what's in it for me. So if I'm, if I'm doing a training of for sales training and, and my, my individuals are commission-based individuals, that first hook in, in the content writing may be something creative around how this helps someone earn more. Um, and allows them to be hooked in before we actually start telling the story to them, um, allows them to get in and, and be engaged in the content because they feel invested in it. So that's one example, I guess, in, in one specific kind of narrow avenue. I Honestly, this one, I think, and, and sometimes we sound like a bit of a broken record, but it's because it's tried and true practices. This one's all about knowing your audience. Are you able to speak the way your audience typically wants to be spoken to is it are you using verbiage and language that they're used to that they find familiar um that they can relate to and if, if you're doing those things more often than not your content is going to be more engaging i think generally uh i think people are going to resonate more with it they're going to hear the message a little more clearly uh they're going to find less confusion as they talk through those things uh, and they try to absorb your material so I, I to me when i think of engaging writing that's number one is just know your audience and then i it is the 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 creative writing aspect that we've been talking about so much is put some personality in your in your content so that it is speaking with a voice that is also representative of your organization, your culture, your company, so that it's also conveying that message. Uh, and if you do those things, I think you're going to find most people are going to become more engaged because they're hearing it frequently. It sounds again familiar, and it seems authentic and i think those are really key elements to just that engaging writing is something that invites someone in keeps their attention span uh speaks to them as they like to be spoken to and ultimately they can carry that back with them as they go to do their job 
gonna combine these next two questions because I think they can be answered pretty quickly. Um, how many, bless you, how many edits does e-learning content go through before it actually goes live? And then do multiple creative writers work on the same course together? Yeah, so this is uh, a balance and a dance. I think we do with every client a little bit differently, typically when we work with them. Uh, some content comes to us pretty fully baked. And what I mean by that is uh, we've got certain clients who come with most of it already kind of outlined and written. And it's, it's, it, it's in a place where it doesn't need a lot of extra um, massaging. It might just be some simple like arrangement that needs to be done. Those courses tend to come together a lot faster uh, with fewer revisions because uh, there was already a, a pretty good base to start with. Other clients come to us with just uh, a pile of documents, uh, kind of like someone going to get their taxes done and they sort of just bring the big shoebox full of a random stack of receipts, right? And the, the accountants, the one who's responsible for kind of piecing it all together and making sure they can still uh, tell that story of where you, where you spent your money, how you spent your money, what you should be taxed. Um, for some of our clients, that's it. They just have a series of PDFs and job aids and pictures and elements and spec sheets. And it takes a lot longer in those instances instances for us to identify objectives from the assets we have, start to piece those things together and make a cohesive story. And that goes through multiple levels of revision. I don't think we try to extend it too long because you can sort of get paralysis analysis uh, by just going over and over and over and tweaking this and, and adjusting that. Um, so we try to put some limits on it when we get a pretty good story. But if, if we're staying true to those objectives, I, I don't know, Daniel, what would you say? Maybe two to three revisions is pretty normal, I think, on most of our stuff. Yeah, I would say two to three rounds of revisions is typically normal. I will say this is, is when, with our, with our, you know, our larger partners who we, we produce a lot more content for on a regular basis, whether it's monthly, bi-weekly, weekly, in some cases, um, those, those revision um, processes are a lot shorter. Um, I would say because the writers who are working on the project basically are part of that organization when it comes to knowledge about their products, their process, all those sorts of things. And onto the note of do multiple creative writers work on the same course together, individual courses, uh, rarely. Um, I would say that the way they work together on those is, you know, peer reviews and making sure the content that's pushed, it's kind of unbiased in terms of um, in the peer review of going to the next stage in the process, but they don't typically write the same story together. Uh, because they want, we want that single voice. Um, but there may be groups of, of content writers who work on the same client um, projects. So a number of projects together that kind of all come in and piece together as a whole. So um, yeah, single, single writer in most cases on, on an individual course. So you mentioned in past episodes, tapping into the learner's creativity. Um, this person wants to know what creativity are you looking to get from the learner? So I guess what benefit does the learner's perspective bring to training? Yeah, I think um, when it comes down to learner's creativity, I think we, we talk about this a lot that, that you need to listen to your learner, you need to listen to your audience. And I think that part of that is being able to take in um, what they believe is creative and engaging training or information that they can put out to the field. So when you talk about what advantage you're looking to get from the learner, they have a perspective that you typically don't. Um, and if I use a sports analogy, the L&D department of an organization is typically on the sidelines. Um, they are like a coach. They are 
like a manager um, who is sitting on the sidelines and they have a different perspective of the game that's going on on the field or the court. Um, and the learner or the audience is on the field and they have a very entrenched perspective. So being able to tap into their creativity allows you to see and hear and distribute content from the vision um, from the people who are actually engaged in it on a day-to-day basis. So it creates a new approach. It creates a, a new perspective um, and also a very trustworthy kind of in the moment perspective uh, to kind of look at content from. I also think uh, when, when we talk about creativity and sparking it, sometimes it's simply just letting them build their imagination and let them kind of ideate on some things internally uh, within themselves. So good training should encourage you to take that forward and do something with whatever you've learned. So uh, whether that is I'm going to act differently myself, uh, my behavior is going to change uh, as a result of what I've learned. It can be that I want to share that information out and, and get others to feel the same thing I felt from the training so that they also will act differently. But with that comes not just regurgitation. Uh, a lot of times we don't necessarily want someone to just verbatim memorize what they learned in a training and spout it out uh, upon command, if you will. We want them to say, I can take what I learned and I can make it my own. I can put my own spin on it so that it comes from my voice and it sounds more authentic. But also, I need to be able to take that action or behavior that I want to do and I want to mold it to my day-to-day job, which might be slightly different than the guy next to me. Um, But it's adaptation and application of those behavior skill changes that is part of it. And that takes a certain amount of creativity that can be sparked within the training itself. Okay, so this is our last kind of process question, but last month's theme was all about creativity and thinking outside of your own reality for training. Is there brainstorming sessions that go on between the developers and the clients when it comes to fostering this creativity, or is it mainly on the developers and writers to spearhead the creativity side? I think this one's a a yes and yes answer, honestly. Um, Daniel brought up a good point in one of the prior questions that the longer we work with a client, the fewer revisions and things like that there are. And I think that's probably true in this question as well, that the longer we work with someone, the more we kind of understand what they like, what they dislike, where their preferences might lie. And maybe that individual brainstorming with the client maybe shrinks just because we already kind of know where they want to end up. Um, but that's not to say they don't come to us too and say, I, you know, we want to try something different, but I don't know what it is. And we start to talk through that. And that is with our developers that kind of build the content as well as those that write it. Um, I would say on every course, though, we have quite a bit of collaboration between our writers and our developers internally, no matter what. So every course, we, we're we not trying to just always build an assembly line of content. We want it to feel authentic and new, and we want it to have uh, the right amount of uh, oversight so that it, it, it doesn't just feel like we're carbon copying the same thing, because I think that can be distracting or... Um, a disincentive to learners because they feel like they've just seen it already. So I would say on every project, our developers and content writers at least kick around like, is there an interactive element we should use in this? Or what's the best layout or flow? I think they always are having that conversation. Yeah. And just to piggyback on what Scott said, and I don't need to add too much to it, but I think in a lot of cases, you know, we, we brainstorm when, when courses come to us and we think of neat ideas, but a lot of times our clients will get on a call with us and be like, you know, we want to spice things up. want to do something different, you know, go. 
And we have we we have a lot of marketing DNA throughout our organization, and it, it causes us to um, be very creative and come up with some pretty outside of the box ideas. And sometimes our clients look at us with like we have uh, you know three eyes, but uh, it it allows us to think outside of the box. So I think just to piggyback on Scott, yes and yes, um, it's usually collaborative, um, and uh, it's always fun to see what those collaborations can bring up. Now we're kind of going to switch the direction with the questions and these are going to be more community building and this month's theme. Um, so the first one is how do you encourage people to create their own content without disrupting the organization's L and D message? I think this, this comes down to culture um, and learning culture as a whole. So you as an organization have a vision for um, your learning development, organizational development, talent development, training as a whole for your employees um, and how it relates to marketing and everything, all the other information your organization is disseminating. Um, and if you've gone through the process of listening to your learners' feedback, listening to their objectives, and being transparent about what your L&D message is, I think it, it puts everything in a place where that content that you're going to get is going to thrive. Um, anytime people are empowered to be part of the process and part of the message and part of the plan, typically the res the end result is, is good. Um, and so I, the biggest thing for me is, you know, how do we allow it, um, you know, to not disrupt our L and D message, um, is transparency. I think allowing them to see what the message is and tell them that you want them to be a part of it. And this is your message as much as it is ours. And I think that empowerment um, and allowing them to be a part of it will will allow you to really get, you know, squeeze some pretty good juice out of a, of an orange or I don't know, I have some metaphor I was thinking, but I lost it. So let's say that. Squeeze some really good juice out of that orange, you know? Employees as oranges that we can all picture that in our heads now. Uh, no, I think there's uh, just a couple small things that I'll add to that as well is this is probably when we talk about user-generated content, which... I think is is a trend we're going to see more and more of. So I and it, it's something we've discussed a lot, and it's been hit and miss on on an, uh, the success we've had with trying to get it rolled out well. Um, but it it's an organizational thing that you kind of have to just sort of embrace that you want your users to be a part of that as well. Um, and historically, we've struggled with that. A lot of uh, organizations and clients that we've worked with see user-generated content as a distraction from day-to-day -day activities or um, it, not aligning to the to the productivity that they would like. And, and while that is 100% authentic and true, and uh, I can totally understand the argument that it takes you off the sales floor, it takes you away from your computer uh, doing analysis or whatever your job is, I think you have to be able to embrace the fact that as I'm teaching back or as I'm creating content, I'm also retaining information. Not only am I sharing with others, which helps broaden that horizon, but I'm building better network uh, within my own brain to make ties to things and to retain information for a longer period of time. So there are also benefits to it. And I think you've got to balance that out as an organization, decide what's most important. And then the other thing that I guess I would just bring up is I think you know transparency and clarity in your message is 100% correct. And I'm, I'm, going to steal, I'm going to steal Daniel's thunder on this one. Stick to your learning objectives. If your learning objectives are well-defined, consistent, and clear, users can stick to those as well. 
by understanding those and, and adhere to those same topics and concepts that if those objectives are always defined, they're very uh, upfront and, uh, and center, users will start to do that as well and think about those when creating content that now aligns to your individual L&D message and has that consistency as well so that you're not getting deviation or distraction from your overarching message. I just want to say that I stealed your thunder or something like that should be like on a t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, it might be. We've got some sweet slogans. uh, And I'm always happy to put our creative department to work on on just random stuff for the podcast. So, uh, but Steeled Thunder, love it. The next stop is, how do you encourage people to contribute to group work through e-learning? So is there anything like virtual icebreakers you can do? Or how do you just motivate people to contribute? This is a... An interesting one. And and I think, again, when I talk about trends, we're going to see, I think, living in remote environments the way we do and having more self-paced content, we're going to see some push towards more of of group work and this this sort of collaborative social learning type of environment is going to become more valuable uh, in the digital space. And e-learning itself, like traditional e-learning, if we're talking about like SCORM courses or um, AICC or something like that, to get technical and nerdy on the on the acronyms there, but that's going to be tougher. Those are typically truly self-paced. They're they're one and one person, one computer, one course. But I think there's a lot of ways you can foster that partnership and relationship through virtual classrooms and virtual whiteboarding and, and find ways to contribute in that sense. And I think allowing for that as an organization and realizing there's value in that and encouraging your attendees, learners uh, to go that route is going to be really helpful. The other thing I think is uh, going to become something you can work on in this space is when someone comes to a facilitated classroom, are you giving them avenues to stay tied to their peers that were in that class together that went through the session or the the multi-day event or whatever it is, giving them a voice and an outlet to talk to each other? And I think uh, another thing that can come from that is if the conversation starts to stagnate a little bit and doesn't keep moving in the way you want as a facilitator, you can drop those prompting questions back in to keep the dialogue going and, and engage those learners on a more long-term basis. I think to add on to that, um, the virtual world puts it people in an interesting place where camera on or off, but camera off especially um, where people feel like they don't have to contribute and they can sit and listen. Um, and I know we talked about group work, but I really, the, the first thing that I'll, I'll mention is, is understanding kind of what your key size of group is. So just like an in-person instructor-led training or an in-person webinar, in, during that session, you're, you're going to have the same handful of people that probably communicate right? And they're probably the ones who are the most engaged and they raise their hand, they ask questions. So when it comes to group work, it's really figuring out what the sweet spot is. Is it, is it pairs? Is it, uh, is it threes or fours or fives or sixes? And to allow to get into a place where everyone can contribute, everybody feels comfortable contributing and knowing the people you have in the room. I know that in a lot of the group work training exercises that I even do from a coaching perspective, through all of this virtually, um, the conversations that I hear as a, as a facilitator in the group of 30 versus 
six groups of five are completely different and everybody's contributing everybody's taking part so i think it's really understanding how people feel most comfortable and that might even be asking questions up front of you know what makes you want to contribute in a classroom setting or a group work setting like and asking those questions to kind of build out that understanding so you can kind of put people on a good playing field to feel comfortable voice being on camera number one but then voicing their thought process afterwards um this is an interesting question is social learning a concept that works for everyone what are your perspectives my my first instinct is to, or my first thing that i want to say is no um everyone's different people some people learn really well in a self like a self-paced environment i mean you, if you talk to any student today if you talk to a scott one of scott's boys Sabrina, if you talk to your brother, if you talk to a university student, a high school student, some of them are going to tell you they, they love online learning. Some of you are going to tell they would they wish they were in the classroom. Some of you are going to tell, like, I never want to go back to the classroom, which I've heard that before. Um, and I think social learning falls into that same category. I think that some people, when it comes to training, learning, and their objectives, of what they want out of it, will want to come in, take their content, learn, make their notes, and move on. And other people want to come in, learn, chat, and, you know, talk about it and then go and then come back and talk about it again and maybe talk about it too much. And, and then there's a balance in the middle. So I, I don't think it's for everyone. Now, do I think there's benefits for everyone? Yes. But I think an overall part of that works term that was used in the question is that if someone's not comfortable or isn't willing to buy into it, it's not going to work. So that takes a lot of change management, but I think in the simplest form, if it doesn't work for everyone, my personal instinct is no, but I think you, you as a facilitator or, uh, you know, an L and D professional half or a coach have to find ways to incorporate them in the social aspect. Yeah. I think the, the notion that it's for everyone probably wouldn't be first preference. Can it be utilized with everyone? Yes. Can everyone get something out of it? For sure. But it is going to be uh, a lot of your personal experience also drives this. We probably all have a horror story from grade school or even high school or college even where, you know, you got paired up with three random people in your class and you ended up having to carry the weight of the entire group because uh, Johnny was out partying all night and Billy just doesn't care and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, we, we, we've had those and groups are can be if they're if they're not well paired for your personality, something like that. They can actually be worse and distracting in many ways, but that doesn't mean there's not value in them. It just means there was a bad experience or it could be a bad pairing. Um, so I, I'm sure there are many of us that uh, would probably lean to say no, just some, simply because it wouldn't be preference. But I, I think there is value in all of that. And the rea we, we talked about it a little bit in the last episode that as a human race, we are social by nature on some level. And a lot of what we learn comes from our interactions with others, whether that's formal or informal. Um, and so, you know, truly formal group work where it's, it's sort of dictated and directed uh, maybe isn't your cup of tea, but those informal interactions that also come out of that arrangement or from your day-to-day -day activities, I think social learning is part of that. And so I, there's, a, there's an element of it that I think it does work for everyone, um, but it may not be your first preference. I guess would be the way I'd, I'd phrase that to kind of parrot what Daniel was saying a little bit. 
Okay, so for the last question, it says, from the learner's perspective, I guess this is more for those who enjoy social learning, but what is the most influential part of learning communities slash social learning with like having that within your e-learning course? So what does the learner benefit most from it? Yeah, this one uh, I think is fairly cut and dry, although it's, it's probably never is. There's a lot of ways we could look at this, but uh, there, there are a significant amount of research studies, data that go into telling us that group work improves retention. People learn and retain longer. They retain more information um, when they're able to talk about it, when they carry it forward and they make discussion, when they uh, have to think in application where they're applying what they've learned to a, a question or a scenario and they have to, to dialogue it out. And then also when they teach others. Uh, again, we're, we're social beings in a lot of ways. When you have to formulate not just the words you read, but also put them back into speech, you're going to retain more that way too. So I think the easy answer, I guess, and I'll, I'll take the easy path out here and, and leave Daniel with more of a creative maybe take on it, but is it's simply just you're going to retain more information. You're going to understand the material more when you speak it in words to a group or you do that work together collaboratively to take a message forward and adapt it. I think... Learning communities and social learning, the biggest thing that I, I always take from it personally. So, you know, from a learner's perspective, if I put myself in the look back at my scenarios and say I'm the learner, I think it's the challenging or affirmation of perspective. So when I take, when I'm in a self-paced environment and I take an e-learning or I'm in a synchronous environment and we're all there together, um, for me, it's... Um, it's, it's, if I have a perspective on something and people, you know, are able to confirm it and agree with me and say, Hey, then I feel good about what I, what I've taken from that, which empowers me to continue to do it and do better. But also when I have a perspective, if someone challenges that perspective, it puts me in a place where I have to start asking myself questions of like, Hey, did I, did I not understand this correctly? Are they wrong? Am I wrong? Is, is it okay if we're both wrong or right? Um, and allows me to ask questions, which then can, if I, if I'm in the state of a growth mindset, which I try to be when it comes to continuous learning, then it allows me to kind of take away and continue to grow on that. So the challenging or affirmation of, of my perspective or what I've taken from it is I think for me, the most influential part when I'm in the learner's per, um, shoes. I love a good mailbag episode. It lets us really kind of dialogue through a whole bunch of different topics and hopefully provide some insight back to the listeners who submit some of these questions and maybe can uh, now take that forward and do something uh, with the information and, and act a little bit differently or have some success rolling out their plans. So uh, hopefully everyone else enjoyed a good mailbag episode. Uh, it wouldn't be a normal uh, podcast for us though if we don't end it on a happy note. So let's go ahead and have our positivity points. Come on, get happy. I'll go first today on my positivity point. Uh, there's something a lot of fun around watching your kids conquer a mountain, right? And, and do something new and, and, and be successful. And so for, uh, for Oliver this year, he, my youngest, he is in uh, a different level of, of baseball, uh, where they do machine pitching. So they've, they've moved from coach pitching, uh, you know, lightly tossing a ball to, uh, more like a batting cage machine that throws to them. And, pros cons we we can talk about that some other day but uh it definitely 
is different for the kids because it's coming from a lower angle. It tends to be a little faster than the way their kids is, uh, their coaches have pitched them in the past. And it takes every kid a little while to get used to it. And so Oliver played his third or fourth game last night. And um, after striking out a whole lot of times, he was getting closer and closer. Last night, he, he knocked his first single up the middle. Pretty hard hit, actually. I was pretty impressed. Um, and the, the look of joy and enthusiasm and in his eyes, knowing he had accomplished something that he'd been struggling with and hadn't had a lot of success with or any success with to that point. Um, like you could just see a renewed energy around wanting to keep going. And so that was really fun for me to watch him get his first base hit of the season. That is awesome. I think, uh, I I'm going through that right now with just, I mean, it's every day with a, with a one-year-old of like their, their sense of accomplishment, but I I'm excited for the, that sports moment. Hopefully Oakley plays sports. We'll have to see, but that is, uh, I imagine that's very rewarding. All right. On my note, um, I know that, uh, Ontario is so happily going into, you know, lock or is it currently in lockdown again and stay at home order. But, um, I will say regardless of all that golf season is back. Um, it is master's weekend this weekend, which I thought Scott was going to bring up and he didn't, but you know, family first, I get it. Um, it is master's weekend, but also hoping to, uh, hit the links for my first tee time this weekend, which is going to be a nice de-stressor. Um, when I was younger, golf used to frustrate me, but now it is one of the most relaxing places, um, in my life where I don't really think about too much, which is awesome. So I'm excited for that just to get out there play a nice round spring is sprung uh in windsor so I'm, I'm looking forward to it and i'm happy golf season is back so i i am very excited that it's master's weekend but i'm also conflicted which is why it didn't get to be a positivity point for me today so um normally the greatest joy in my life is the dulcet tones of jim nance uh, lulling me to an afternoon nap on a sunday afternoon of the masters and I'm conflicted because it's baseball tournament weekend. And so Mason plays this weekend and I want him to do really, really well in the tournament. Obviously we would love to go play for our third championship game in three consecutive tournaments, another positivity point, but that means I'm at a baseball field all day on Sunday. So if they were to happen to just get a tough break and lose in that first one, I get to come <laughs> home and lay on the couch. But if not, uh, you know, so I, I want to be there for him. I want to encourage him. But, if, you know, if I got to come home a little early, I wouldn't mind the best nap of the year, which is uh, Amen Corner and, and light piano tinkling as Jim Nance tells me, hello, friends. And then I fall asleep, and it's it's the best I feel all year. All right, Scott, one last thing. You falling asleep to Jim Nance is one of my favorite things you say because you do say it a lot. Oh, yeah. um, predictions. Ooh. I, uh... So every year I find uh, I want a particular golfer to win, and that's the worst way to go about this. It's uh, I pick a favorite who's doing well, whatever it is. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go darker horse here, and someone maybe isn't as, as popular. I'm gonna go. I think Tony Fino is eventually going to take on uh, Augusta, and he's played really well there. That's gonna be my pick. I don't know. We'll see. I, I really hope he does because I actually had a conversation this very morning with someone about how Finau's just never turned the corner. Like he seems like he doesn't have like it. So I really hope that he does because I'll tell you two years ago, he folded under the pressure of Tiger Woods and in, in, on Sunday. Um, with that being Not said, that he's alone I, on that, by the way, that's, that's well, many yeah, have, yeah. but yeah, plenty, plenty of, um, I'm going to go with, with, uh, Jordan Spieth. Um, I was very happy 
that he won last weekend. Um, I'll tell you, people have been very, he was supposed to be the next thing three years ago. Right. And people have been very critical of him that he hasn't won in three years. And, and the smile on his face last week, and he's still a very good golfer too. So I'd love to see him win this weekend after kind of three years of struggling because he was supposed to be the next young guy. So um, I know that that's not uh, a, I guess, a dark horse pick. I'm sure he's one of the favorites, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for Jordan Spieth this weekend. There you go. Yeah, and uh, it'll all depend on whether or not he can uh, get away from the nightmares of digging up digging a new pool on the 12th fairway uh, about three years ago. So, <laughs> um, yeah. That, that moment, by the way, made me feel good about my golf game there uh where we've completely digressed now but uh i think it was john rom was pitching onto a green last weekend or the weekend before might have been two weekends ago and he he hit it and it went a solid like three feet into the into the rough and rolled right back to where he's standing i was like that's my kind of golf shot right there that i can do that like so it made me feel a little that they are human uh they're not uh as incredibly uh perfect all the time uh 99.9 of the time they're amazing but yeah they do they get the flubs too just like the rest of us so made me feel a little better about my golf game all right that will do it for us today with a, a strong diversion into the golf world uh so maybe that's our next podcast we're, we're coming up with many many other topics but uh thank you for listening today on the mailbag show i'm scott babcock he's daniel mendonza she's sabrina pontoni and we will talk to you next week have a good one everybody Thank you for listening to another episode of the If You Build It, Will They Learn podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Join the conversation by emailing us at podcast at haylight.com. Find us on social media at Build It, Learn It, and be sure to check us out on the web at www.haylight.com. That's H-A-L-I-G-H-T dot com. Thank you.